0: We'll now be reading from God's Word. We'll be reading from Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning, y'all. Thanks for joining us this morning. My name is Steve, and I am the lead pastor here at Trailhead. And uh, for those of you who are here live, thanks for joining me. Uh, Those of you that are outside, thanks for um, braving the cold weather. Uh, Those of you online, thanks for making it a priority to join us um, live at 10 a.m. Again, even though we can't have shared spaces, I think it's incredibly important that we uh, try to have shared experiences. And and worship on Sunday morning is one of those critical experiences for our community. And so thank you for making it a priority. Uh, for joining us, even if you're not able to be here in the flesh and blood. Okay, a couple of important announcements. I've been pushing these, but each week we're getting more and more people connected, which is worth the push. So I want to remind you that you need to download the Church Center app if you haven't done so already. You can go to your app store, whether it's um, whatever your brand is, and uh, they will hook you up. And uh, when you do that, it'll allow you to register for events, get important information, uh, access our, our daily Bible reading plan, uh, and a number of other things. So I'd encourage you to do that. Also, if you haven't yet, encourage you to text, yeah, buddy, to 618 266 3210. This will sign you up for our, uh, text list, which at this point we're, we're using to send out some reminders about reading. Um, it's also going to be our way to communicate urgent information as things change or develop. Uh, It's just an important way to stay connected. Um, And so if you haven't texted, yeah, buddy, yet, please do so. All right, as you guys all know, um, we've had another crazy week. Uh, And uh, this week, our president, um, President Trump and Melania, his, his wife, along with Three senators and a whole entourage of people in his circle have been diagnosed with coronavirus. Uh, And so I would just like to take a moment and uh, let's pray for the health and safety of um, those that are the governing powers over us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are uh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you that even as we approach you, um, we are approaching the true sovereign, um, the one who has... In his hand the very power of life and death and so we come to you and we ask for grace and we ask Lord for protection um, for our elected officials um, we pray for their well-being even as you have commanded us to do and so we would pray that you would protect um, the life and uh, the vitality of President Trump and his wife Melania and. Um, our senators and um, all of those that are currently being affected um, and uh, ask lord that you would by your grace um, give them the strength they need to fight off this infection for your glory and um, and then ultimately lord work through them uh, as only you can for our good and we pray for this rich blessing in jesus name amen all right. We've been looking at the early church um, and kind of examining them because they are an incredible example to us of what it means to thrive in a season of difficulty, right? In a season of stress, right? When you read about the early church, man, they've got stress, conflict, loss, suffering. They they are dealing with loss of economic uh, advantage as well as um, incredible need as as you know thousands of people who were visiting Jerusalem for the festivals became believers and suddenly just decided to stay and become part of their community and move into their homes and eat their food. And and it was an incredible season of sacrifice. And in this sacrifice, we see them thriving in joy and freedom and boldness and rich community, so much so that people throughout the centuries since have looked back at the early church as the model of what church can be. In fact, what church should be. We, we look back and we think, man, if we could just have the experience of the early church, their dynamic joy, their bold witness, their, their, their contentment, their hope, right? They didn't just survive. They thrived in their time of suffering. And, uh, and as we saw last week, they had a community of Um, ridiculous generosity. I don't know if there's any other better way to describe it, right? It describes them in our passage selling all that they had, right? Now again, let's not dehumanize and depersonalize this account. You know what you've done to accumulate what you have. You know how much you treasure. Um, the things that are in your garage, the things that you used to treasure and still currently treasure and hope to treasure soon, right? To to actually go through the sacrifice of holding all things in common, right? And, and as any have need, giving freely, right? The, there's an indication here that they were actually aggressively selling what they had in order to be prepared to meet the needs before they even arose, right? It wasn't just a responsive like, oh, you have a need, okay, I'll meet it. It was like, no, we know we have a explosive needs all around us so we are going to actively move into sacrifice to meet those needs right this wasn't about uh simply a friend giving to friends um people we like people we know people we know that give us give us credit for giving no this was these were people they didn't know and probably quite a few people that they didn't even know really how to like yet um there was a, a a lot going on here so we love to read about what they had But if we're honest, I think most of us would recoil a bit at the price they paid to get it. We want what they had. But I think most of us would be really reluctant to pay the price they paid to get it. You know why? Because love demands more than we want to give. Doesn't it? Always. Always. Every parent knows this viscerally, right? Um, But we know this through our friendships. We know this through our marriages. We know this through, through, right? Love always, always demands more than we want to give. But the beautiful thing is that it promises to reward us with more than we could ever hope to have. What it gives far surpasses everything it demands we give up. So why would this first century community of believers become so ridiculously generous, right? Where did they get the boldness to do this, the, the energy to do this, the determination? Um, every, and, and the answer is everything in their lives was aligned with their purpose, right? They were driven by a purpose, not just a not just a, a values that they hoped they valued or thought they might value, but a purpose that actually drove them. So let me remind you, um, we've been looking at this and we've pretty this this up a little bit from last week. Instead of just scratches in my notebook, uh, the uh, the team actually got a hold of it and made it look nice. Um, but I want to remind you that that our purpose is revealed in the great commandment, right? In the great commandment, Jesus said. Um, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors. You love yourself upon these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, right? So the great commandment, love God and love others, is, is why we exist. It's why we were created, but it's also how we become what we were created to be. Right? We were created to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love one another even as we love ourselves, right? To love those created in the image of God as much as we love God, right? That, that's what we were created to do and, and, and we've obviously in sin changed that but, but the way back to it is to actually start doing it, right? That's why it's a command, right? Do this because this is not only why you were created but how you become what you were created to be. Now out of the great command flows the great commission. Right? The Great Commission um, is, is His command to live it out in such a way that others will live it with you. Right? Be disciples who make disciples. Be disciples. Like drink deeply at the fountain of grace. Let this love undo your pride. Free you into the flow of love. Like, like be those people who, who don't just hold to the ideas, but actually experience the reality. Be disciples, who make disciples, right? Go out and and love. And love in such a way that others are attracted to the God of love, right? Live it out and invite others to live it with you. Be messengers who embody the good news, right? Not just sharing the the propositional truths of of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but actually embodying the very experience of grace, and as people start asking you about the hope that is within you, because they see this dynamic experience of love and freedom and boldness, you're able to share with them the reality of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Right? Great commandment is our, is our purpose. The great commission is our marching orders. The core practices are how we get there, right? At The very center of the circle are, are how they did it, right? The holy habits that they developed that helped them be rooted and grounded in love, in their experience of God's love, but also strong in love, actually moving out in love toward others. So let me remind you of the core practices. They're what we find in Acts chapter two, right? They were devoted to these things, right? They made daily habits in their lives that equipped them to obey the great command and live out the great commission. Right? And, and, and at the heart of their shared experience was a devotion to the word, and to worship, and to prayer. Right? These, were, these were dynamic, shared experiences of community in which they were being transformed uh, by their daily habits in these things. But what gave these holy habits their power was the atmosphere in which they were created. Right? These holy habits came out of and reinforced their experience of being a community on mission. Right, These weren't individual habits practiced in individual solitude. Right, They were a community on mission, and as a community on mission, at the heart of their shared experience was the word, the worship, and the prayers. Um, last week, we took a look at this concept of community. And, and in fact, the very word community, right? Community is a shared generosity that is born from a shared experience of grace, right? That, that would be my definition of community. It is, it is a shared generosity born from a shared experience of grace, okay? It, it is way more than just hanging out with people or being around other human beings in the same space, right? Showing up in somebody's living room and putting in your time and going home, right? Community is... is Uh, generosity, shared generosity of life that is born from a shared experience of grace. The word itself, koinonia, we looked at this last week, uh, it's translated fellowship. In our passage, we we use the word community. Um, At the heart of koinonia um, is is this idea of sharing, partnership, generosity, right? There, There is no true community without generosity so community then is the sharing together of what God has shared with us right we have a ridiculously generous God right a God who who left heaven and came to earth a a God who who set aside his glory and was clothed in the humility of mankind who lived the life we should have lived and then died was humble enough to die the death we deserved to die he he not only set aside his glory he clothed himself in our shame and died under the weight of our guilt So that he could pay a price we could never pay and then in rising, he could give us what we could never earn, right? He says, give me your shame and I will give you my glory. You're not going to find a more profound example of ridiculous generosity, right? At the heart of grace is generosity, love gives, it always does, love gives or it's not love, right? God is a God of ridiculous generosity, he is a God of grace, and as a result of receiving that generosity, we are called then to move out in the life of generosity with other people, right? So, so our shorthand for describing community is knowing and being known and loving and being loved, right? That, that, that it's more than just showing up to a meeting. It's actually knowing and being known. It's life on life. Right? It, is, it is loving and being loved, being open enough and vulnerable enough that, that people actually know you and feel safe enough to be known by you. Right? Community isn't something you go do, it isn't a group that you join. It is an actual sharing of life. Now, here's the rub, y'all. Once you start sharing life with other broken people, it's going to hurt, it gets messy right? We like the kind of community where people put up with our brokenness and don't give us any of theirs. We, we like it when people show up and give us all the grace we need to be dumb at times and stupid and rude with our words and selfish with our attitudes and sometimes abrasive. And we just don't, don't even be so gracious that you don't even show us that stuff, but don't you dare bring that to me, right? We like to be treated like God, Um, and and like God, we want to have the ability to push everybody away from us that we don't like as if we had God-like power. Community is challenging because it is going to cost. And that's why, honestly, most of us want affinity groups and not true community. We want to be surrounded by people um, who don't take more than they give. You know? Is that too much to ask? I want to have people in my life that don't take more than they give, so I'm going to choose to have people in my life who benefit me in some way, like I enjoy their company, right? They're beneficial to me. They, they actually give me more than they take from me, right? And those people who take more from me than they give, again, stiff arm, distance, separation, build a wall, create a space, move out to the suburbs, whatever. Um, we, don't, we don't want people around us who make us uncomfortable or insecure or sad or unhappy because we want us reflected back to us because we think that's going to be the path to happiness. If you just reflect me back to me and remind me that I'm okay and I'm good and I'm smart and I'm right, then we'll all be happy, right? It's when you make me insecure about me, when you make me uncomfortable, when you demand more of me than I want to give. Y'all listen to me. Community is beautiful. It is beautiful. It is born from the shared generosity of grace. And it will always lead to the shared experience of grace, which is exactly why community is going to be hard. That's why it's going to be costly, because here's the thing, generosity, man, it's not just about receiving it. It's learning about giving it, right? And that's why we have to be a community on mission. That, that, that We need to be a community on mission. So let's be clear about what the mission of the church is. The Great Commission, right? We have the Great Command, which is the purpose, and the Great Commission, which are the marching orders. Um, the Great Commission, uh, we're commanded to love, right? And the Great Commission flows from that. Basically, says, go deep in that love and go wide with that love, right? Experience that love deeply and share that love widely. Be disciples who make disciples. Now, when it comes down to brass tacks, I think a lot of times we mistake the fruit of the mission for the actual mission. Right? When we start thinking about what's the mission of the church? I think a lot of times we mistake the fruit for the root, right? So so we start thinking about numerical growth. I have this conversation a lot with young pastors. They just they just want to see their churches growing, right? Cuz that's the mission of the church is is to grow. And I always have to remind them that unhealthy things grow too. Just because it's growing big and fast doesn't mean it's anything you want around, right? But, but growth, right? Or, or personal encouragement, right? The mission of the church is to help me reach my personal potential or to meet the needs of my family, to provide a good youth group for my kids. The, the purpose of the church, the mission of the church is, is to equip me to fill my tank so that my family can make it through the week and, and not lose our minds and, 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 and not kill each other and we can come back next week and have our, our tanks filled. All over again, right? Or, or we say that the mission of the church is social engagement. The, the church is supposed to, um, call the whatever culture they're embedded in to become its best self, right? To expose the abuses of power and to help that culture to, to love the outsider and value the orphan and widow, whoever the orphan and widow in, in that culture are, right? However they're represented, those who have no political clout and power and are abused by those with power. Or we say, no, the mission of the church is evangelism. The mission of the church is to simply go out and share the gospel with as many people as possible so that they can become believers. And, 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 and you just need to get out there and preach the gospel, and um, see people that are far from God brought near, right? Listen, y'all, the mission of the church is love. The mission of the church is love. It flows from the great command. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. The mission of the church is love. You can do all these other things and not have love. Right? Paul calls out at it in First Corinthians thirteen. He's like, Man, if I if I give my body to be burned, if I have faith to move mountains, but I have not love, I am a clanging gong. I am a noisy symbol. The mission of the church is love. These other things are really, really good and really, really important. But they are the fruit of the mission. They're not the mission itself. And when we make the fruit the root, we're already off base. You get the root, you'll get the fruit. You go for the fruit without the root, you won't get either. The mission of the church is love. And this is why community and mission simply can't be siloed. Right? We can't divide those two concepts up as if they were two different things in the church. They're, they're not. You can't divide them. The mission is to be disciples who make disciples, right? To be in the community of disciples who are inviting others into the community of disciples. The mission of love, y'all, requires people to love. Doesn't that make sense? Like, it's not good enough to say, I love humanity. Like, you gotta love people. Humanity was skin on with all of the warts and the wrinkles and the problems and the rudeness and the demands and the inconvenience. You have to love people, right? The mission of love requires the people of God to live it out. We cannot be on mission without the people to whom the mission has been entrusted, the church. We need one another. You can't have love without people to love, y'all. You just can't. And the community of the church requires the mission in order to grow in love, right? So the mission requires the community, and the community requires the mission, right? The community requires the mission in order to love, or we're going to bail when it gets too costly, We're going to create affinity groups that just make us comfortable and reflect us to us and we're just going to come together and celebrate how great we are compared to everybody else in the world and we're going to miss love. Listen, y'all, the purpose of our lives is to be loved by God. To respond to that love in the only way that's reasonable with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. And then from that profound experience of being loved and loving God to then love others that are created in the image of God even as we are tempted to love ourselves. That's the command. That's the commission. And it's actually, when you talk about love, man, when you just start talking about be loved, respond to love, grow in love, right? It even sounds easy in some way. It sounds really attractive, right? Who doesn't like like love? We don't like love. Let's be honest. We fear it. We fight against it. Now why would anybody be afraid of love? Grace, unconditional love, right? It's non-judgmental, accepts it. It loves, it, it, it ennobles, it dignifies, it removes shame, it gives glory. Why would anybody resist love? Because while it is beautiful and gracious and dignifying and powerful and joyful, it is insatiable in its demands. Love is needy. Love is consuming. Love doesn't respect boundaries. And love never stops asking for more. Which is why we find it so attractive and why we fight Against it, it terrifies us we 're afraid of what love 's going to ask us to give up we 're afraid of what love is going to ask us to sacrifice we 're afraid of the discomfort love is going to lead us into the, the, the what we 're going to have to give up. Let me explain why I think it 's important that we expose this. We started digging into it a little bit last week. Let me just reread these verses. Uh, last week, I referenced 1 John 2, 16 and 17. I'm just going to reread them quickly. It says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John is defining worldliness. Right. Remember, worldliness are the systems we create to do life apart from the God who gives life. Worldliness is our attempt to get the fullness of life apart from the God who gives that fullness. Worldliness is our way of looking at creation and saying to creation, you will do for me what only the Creator can do. Right? Because we have rebelled against God, cut ourselves off from God, and basically said, I will be like God, we have these same deep desires for the fullness of life that God planted within us, and we're seeking to fill those desires. Through worldliness, right? So worldliness are the structures that, that we create to do life apart from the God who gives life. And John tells us that our worldliness is driven by desire and pride, right? The, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Desires and pride so let me just remind you worldliness isn't some sin you might slip into if you're not careful right um, d- worldliness is not something if you if you're if you're not religious enough you might become worldly worldliness is the default mode of the human heart worldliness is the sinful settings that we're all born with because we're all born with the rebellion of our first parents embedded in our hearts worldliness is all of our problems Not some of our problems, right? All of us are going to struggle with this. It is the default mode of the human heart. Worldliness is the very thing that every single one of us needs to be set free from. What does the gospel need to free us from? What is the prison of our hearts? Our worldliness, right? And it looks like this. So when you talk about pride and desire... um, I'm sorry, I'm driving my creative team crazy once again. Um, came up with a, a, a diagram that was too late for them. And so I'm just show, showing you the picture out of my notebook. Okay, so think about it like this. Worldliness is, is first of all, wrapped up in pride, right? The, the boastful pride of life, how some translations put it. Pride simply says, um, I can be like God, right? That's the first lie in the garden, You can be like God. You don't need to be humbly dependent on God. You can compete with God. You can be like God. You can find the fullness of life apart from God. You can establish your own glory. You can pursue your own security. You can make yourself lovable. You can find your own comfort and pleasure on your own terms. You can define the boundaries of your glory and pursue your own life on your own terms. Pride. Pride is the biggest circle of of worldliness. It is the lie that gives birth to desires, right? The lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. What I'm what I just going to call greed. Lust is a loaded term. Um, the Greek word epithumia means a strong desire. And we have a multiple English words that can translate that, whether it's lust or desire. Desire is too tame for me. Lust is a little too specific. I like greed. Okay, Um, because greed communicates a strong desire to have more, right? Whatever it is, whatever it is, whether it's material things or experiences or reputation or respect or or a bigger bank account or, you know what I'm saying, like it's greed, it's strong desire. So it's pride that drives a never-ending desire, right? Why do we have a desire? Because we're looking to creation to fill a need only the creator can fill. And so at the heart of that that center circle is then I need to keep what I have and get more. Right? Pride, greed, power. I exercise my power to keep what I have and get more. Right? I exercise my power. So pride, greed, power. That's the diagram at the heart of every human. That's the diagram we're born with. We believe that we need to be like God and that we can be like God. We're filled with desires for the fullness of life apart from God, which then leads us to an exercise of power to keep what we have and get more. That center circle, that center circle is like a vault in the dark center of our selfish hearts. And we keep it under lock and key. We lock away all of our accomplishments that we think make us great. All the things that we think are, are what make us truly unique, truly special, truly better than others, right? Some of us lock away unique hurts that we think have defined us and marked us. Instead of moving through the pain toward healing, repentance, reconciliation, we, we instead, man, we make that hurt our identity, That pain becomes what makes me, me, and I'm not going to release that pain or the person who gave me that pain. And I lock that away in that that vault, right? Sometimes we, we lock away our secret pleasures. Those things that we run to to give ourselves escape or, or give us relief or, or give us a renewed sense of energy. When we're exhausted, we lock these things away in this vault and we keep what we have and we fight to get more. And, and we go to this vault when we want to experience the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it. So that's where we go to nurse our fantasies. That's where we go to... to. Um, To comfort our shame, that's where we go. To silence our fear, that's where we go. Because that's where we keep all the things we think are going to give us what only God can give. This vault, y'all, is at the heart of your own personal little kingdom. (laughs) Because you're your own little king in your own little kingdom. If you're going to be like God, that means you have to be your own sovereign and you're going to be your own little king over your own little kingdom. And everything you build in your life is going to be built around this vault. To feed it more and protect it from losing anything. To keep what you have and get more. So everything else you build in your life is built as an expression of what you have in this vault, but also as a protection of what you have in this vault, right? You have this pride, so you've got to do life apart from God, so you must be like God. You have this greed, this personalized greed. And and your greed is going to be different than my greed. Right? Maybe your greed is 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 for security. You just really, really want to feel safe. But my greed is to really, really feel significant, to feel important, seen and 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 famous, right? Maybe your deep need is for approval, to just be seen and loved and, and have everyone adore you and follow you. Maybe your deep need is for comfort, for rest and for pleasure. I don't know what, what your personalized greed is, but but that greed is going to funnel specific things into the vault. Think about the job you choose, right? Think about the people you choose to be part of your life. Think about the communities that you join. The kingdom you build is designed to both feed your vault and also protect your vault it's a filter through which you run all of your decisions to help you figure out how can i keep what i have and how can i get more all right to give you a little glimpse into my dark wicked heart um i prefer jobs that are really challenging i like i like a huge challenge i like a mountain to climb a problem to solve a war to go fight because It's in climbing that mountain, solving that problem, and winning that war that I gain respect. And so I gravitate toward very, very demanding positions because I have a deep desire for respect. In fact, if I'm honest, in my sinful self, I would rather you respect me than like me because I feed off respect. I don't need your affection. But I feed off your respect because there's a deep need in me for significance. Right? And so, what do I do? I surround myself with challenges, with jobs, with accomplishments. Do I challenge? Do I, I surround myself with people who reflect back to me my significance, who tell me how great I am, or who reflect how great I am to an, a, a watching world. Right? Who do I stiff arm? People that rob me of my greatness. People that detract from my significance. People that get me off track from accomplishing my goal or climbing my mountain or winning my war. Now maybe for you, it's something different, right? Maybe for you, we're you're more, you're more concerned that people need you than respect you because you find, you find your, your security in being needed by people. If they need me, they love me. If they need me, I'm important to them. I don't, I don't necessarily need them to respect me. I need them to need me so I can respect myself. Because if people need me, then I'm valuable. And if they don't need me, I don't know what my value is. And so, so you find jobs that help you meet needs in ways that help you have your, your need-solving ability celebrated. You surround yourself with people who need you and celebrate you for meeting those needs, right? For some of you, it's, it's, it could be, you know what I'm saying, like it depends on what you put in that second circle, what you allow into your vault. It's going to be personalized to you, right? Some of you, your, your dream job is is something where you're going to do the least and get paid the most, right? That sounds like death to me, <laughs> But but for some people, that's like, no, man, that's like the best job in the world, right? More than likely, you're going to have people in your life who don't put demands on you. You're going to surround yourself with people that, that just make you comfortable and make life easy for you because your deep need, your deep desire is for pleasure and for comfort, right? Whatever is in that second layer determines what gets into the vault. But what I want you to catch is this. We build layers and layers and layers in our lives to both feed and protect the vault at the center. Why? Because we're convinced that whatever it is we have hidden away in that vault is what's actually going to give us the fullness of life. If I can just be significant enough the shame will be removed. If I could just find the right comfort and pleasure, man, my restless soul will actually be at ease. If I could just get enough people to adore me, I might actually believe that I'm worthy of love. Whatever it is we put in the vault is an expression of what we think is going to lead us to the fullness of life. You know, that's the condition we're in, in our natural state. That's the condition we're born in. That's, that's the pattern of our lives. And then Jesus shows up. Isn't that a great moment? When Jesus shows up. Like for me, I remember exactly when it was. One of the best moments of my life. Ridiculous, right? Right? Sit down one night, 17-year-old kid, read the book of Hebrews, and as I'm reading the book of Hebrews, like, it just, Jesus is better. Jesus is better, and He loves me. Jesus shows up with this ridiculous generosity of love, and it meets my need for significance in ways I didn't know that need could ever be met, like... Like Jesus loves me. He sees me. He doesn't condemn me. He, he doesn't call out my shame. He removes my shame. He actually covers me with His own glory. I don't have to earn His love. I'm actually covered by grace in His love. Jesus shows up with this ridiculously generous love that we call grace. And it's like our first breath of true air. Like someone opened the window in our stinking, rotten little vault, and we get, we get this burst of, of air, right? And, and in blows this living air that, that electrified the original creation, and it enlivens our souls. And something in us responds in a way we didn't know we could respond There is an awakening, responding love to God's love. And we didn't even know that could happen. We didn't know. And something comes to life in us. And with it, man, comes a yearning that is deeper and more profound than any we have ever felt in life. A responding love to that love. Like that love comes to us with ridiculous generosity. And it awakens within us the hunger. Of love. Like we want more. It awakens that kind of love that knows no limits. And doesn't understand boundaries. We want all of it. We want all of God's love. We want the infinite outpouring of God's love. We want to thrive in in, in the ridiculous boundlessness of His grace. And so we follow Because that love is the very breath of life. The very thing we have craved and couldn't get. But to follow our Savior, he says, is to pick up our cross and die. Because the path of love is the path that gives. And so we're conflicted. We want more love, but we recoil at the cost of love. We want more love, but we also want to protect the little vaults that we've spent our entire lives building. You know, Jesus once asked a profound question. He says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And I remember as a young believer, I didn't even really pay attention. Looking back now, I see what I did with it. I looked at it and I'm like, That's a profound question. How do you get the whole world and keep your soul? Right? That's obviously what Jesus is saying is there's a way to get the whole world and still keep your soul. So so don't give up your soul, but try to get the whole world. And of course, that's the exact opposite of what he's saying. He's saying these are two diametrically opposed desires. The greed that drives us to gain the whole world. To keep what we have and get more and more and more is the very desire that will cost us our souls. It will destroy our love. It will shrink our hearts and enslave us. He was telling us that you can't do both. You can't protect your self-serving, self-protecting, self-glorifying vault and follow Jesus in the mission of love. You have to lose the world to gain your soul. You've got to give him the key to the vault, the master key, not just the key to the gate to get in your yard, not just the key to your front door to join you in your front room. You've got to give him the key, the master key, to all of it. To all of it. And I'm going to tell you, it feels like death when you do it. And it feels like death every single time he calls you to sacrifice something you think is sacred. It feels like death and it feels like you're dying, but it's not you dying. It's your worldliness. It's not you dying. It's your false hope in a, in a false promise. It is not you dying. It, it is you dying to the false promise of worldliness that says you can, in fact, find the fullness of life apart from the love of God. If you want to live in love, you have to die to self. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to take up your cross. And die daily. If you're going to grow in grace, you have to die to worldliness. This engine that drives our worldliness, this pride, greed, and power, we have to expose it and see it for what it is. Let me just give you some practical stuff as as we wrap up here. This week I had kind of had a week, right, y'all? Had a week, and this week I had I had a lot of people kind of breaking in with needs that trumped my plan, right? It was one of those weeks where where my agenda didn't get to be my agenda. Other people's needs were breaking in, and I would be lying to you if I said. That, uh, that I went through this week without any personal turbulence. I just had joy and just floated across the surface of all the demands, right? No, it was a really rough week for me. Um, I found myself at moments resenting the intrusions. Frustrated that people were so needy and at times so stupid. Their needs weren't even like, you didn't even have to have this need if you just weren't so stupid. I'll give you something practical. Because I had to wrestle through this week. Lauren helped me with that and called me out in it. You have to learn to see people and not problems. If you focus on the problem, all you're going to see is the sacrifice. But if you focus on the people, you'll start to love them. And it's in loving them that it no longer feels like sacrifice. It feels like investment. It no longer feels like something you have to do. It feels like something that's right to do. Because not only does love demand you give, love gives you the energy to give. Love empowers what it demands. And you're actually enriched in the process. You don't find yourself, in the end, poorer. Poorer. poorest people in the world are the ones who rigorously protect their vault (laughs) they have all their stuff they protect their little kingdom and they're impoverished in love this week by god's grace and i got to be enriched in love and it cost a lot you need to see people not problems you need to seek out opportunities and not guard yourself from threats like You have to seek out opportunities and not guard yourself from threats. Don't measure the cost before you even engage. Ooh, I don't want to go there. I'm sure somebody needy will be there. Mm, I'm not sure I want to call that person. They're going to need a really long conversation. Mm, yeah, I think I'll avoid that because there's somebody on the corner every single week and, 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 and they're going to ask me for something I don't want to give. Don't avoid the cost. Engage the opportunity. It is good for us to be made uncomfortable in love. It is good for us. That's the mission of love. As we push into the discomfort, we are actually waging spiritual war on our heart's idols of selfishness, self-glory, and self-protection. Love is setting up its kingdom in our hearts and breaking open that dark, putrid vault to release its wickedness. So that we can be set free into the beauty of love. Three things happen when we do that personal transformation. Right? That's the three G's. We experience God's grace, it awakens us to gratitude, which propels us into growth. Growth is always uncomfortable because it causes us to give more than we want to give, which pushes us back to grace, which reawakens our gratitude, which pushes us into growth. Personal transformation. Community transformation. To know and be known and to love and be loved requires us to forgive and be forgiven. If you bounce every single time someone offends you, somebody hurts your feelings, somebody has a political position that makes you uncomfortable, you are robbing not only yourself of personal spiritual growth, you are robbing the community of the shared spiritual growth that we need together. We need to be a community of love, not just individuals of love, which requires us to, to not be counting whether or not, like, like are you going to benefit me by being, being around you? Are going to make me comfortable? No. You are called to love your neighbor, not choose your neighbor. You are called to love your near ones, not choose your near ones. <laughs> love. The community itself is transformed as we do that. We create a shared treasure. Because remember, community is, is about the shared experience of God's grace and growing in that grace together in, in a transformative experience of love. And the third thing is that it's the most powerful apologetic the world has ever seen. The mission of the church. If you want to see people far from God brought near, this is how. Right? True apologetics isn't about knowing more than people who don't believe in God. True apologetics isn't, isn't having all the answers to the questions nobody's asking. Right? True apologetics isn't being so smart that people are afraid to have a conflict with you. True apologetics is living a life in such a way that people are compelled to ask you about the hope that you have within you. The most powerful apologetic the church has ever had is love. It's when the outside world sees The community of Christ living out the values of the gospel. That it awakens within the world a profound curiosity about what it is that drives us. Jesus himself said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. It is the, not only primary, I'm going to say only, apologetic for the gospel. If you don't have love, you're just a clanging gong and a noisy symbol. All right, y'all, let's push into the discomfort because it's on the other side of the discomfort that we find our growth in grace. Let me close this in word of prayer and um, we will share communion and, uh, and close by worshiping in song. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a God of ridiculous generosity, that your grace gives you don't just love in theory or idea. You don't love guardedly. Man, you, you love with a lavish, generous, just, you pour yourself out. Not for those who deserve it, not for those who have earned it, not even for those who appreciate it. While we were yet sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. Spirit, will you cause our hearts to respond to that love with love? Will you awaken us to the beautiful reality of a love that destroys our worldliness? Give us the courage, Lord. To open our vaults. Give us the courage to expose our hearts. Give us the courage to step away from the things that enslave us and ensnare us and deceive us and rob us of life and joy, vitality, strength. Awaken us in your grace. Awaken us to your love. Give us the courage to love people that are unlovable. Give us. Um, man, uh, uh, the ability to see people and not problems so that we can actually love people and not use people to build our kingdoms. For your glory, for our good, we pray In Jesus' name, amen.